You are listening to the Tour des Flaneurs, the cycling podcast at the 2022 Tour de France, powered by Super Sapien. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Stage 12, today we're in Alpe d'Huez. Well, Tom Pidcock just passed the line, the winner of stage 12 and possibly the third ever British rider to win up here on Alpe d'Huez. Looks like Louis Mankies is going to come in second and the Peloton, wow, the small group of GC favorites is just behind. Well, we just heard then Tom Pidcock winning the mighty Alpe d'Huez stage uh, on his debut Tour de France, an incredible performance uh, by him. And it looks like you guys are putting out an incredible performance uh, there, sitting, you've got your beers uh, ready, you're, it seems to be that you're at a rave already, but I'm going to say the immortal words, not where are we, Francois, but where are you, Francois? We're, we're actually at a, at a place called Camp de Base, or Camp de Base, if you like. It's a, it's a kind of a strange... Uh, mixture between a bar uh uh you know uh, I, I don't know how to you know a a, 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 a fast food uh, chain chain yeah. or something i mean it's it's well anyways it, it's uh, you know it provides the food it provides a little bit of booze and uh it provides seats for us to talk to you so and it's obviously in l'albuez uh the place where the, the, the race finished today. L'Albrez is a classic of the Tour de France, as we know. A classic, you know, for riders, a classic in the history of cycling. It's also kind of a classic, how could I say, headache for the, the guys following the Tour. Because it, with, with, all, with the crowd at the top uh, here, it's always, you know, a little bit difficult. You know, logistics for eating, drinking, sleeping are uh, difficult. So you, you, you kind of have to know your way around to manage to, uh, you know, have a bite, have a drink and uh, have a little bit of sleep. And Ian Boswell, how does it compare to, to riding up Alpe d'Huez, uh, having to feed yourself and find some beer on Alpe d'Huez? It's definitely a circus. Yeah, I mean, it was funny. I actually um, have been up here a couple times before and you never really see this side of it. I mean, we're sitting here, you probably can hear music in the background. There's some sort of, there's a merry-go-round off to my, off to my right. And, you know, it's, the race is, you know, long since passed, but the party for Alpe d'Huez is probably just beginning in, in many sense for people who are, who are staying up here for presumably the night, but possibly even a couple of days. Now, I'm sure everyone saw the scenes on Alpe d'Huez as always a, a 24-hour party almost up there but we should find out what happened uh, in the stage so here is the tale of the attack stage 12 and it's bastille day at the tour de france so in celebration of the tricolore a trio of some of the most fearsome climbs the galibier the croix de fer and of course alp d'huez Nilsson Paulus attacked from the flag drop, looking to get something from the race after shipping over 26 minutes on the yellow jersey the day before. Five chasers eventually joined him. They were Nelson Oliveira of Movistar, Anthony Perez of Cofidis, Kobe Goussens of Intermarché Wanty Gobert, Matty Louvel of Arkea Samsic and Gerhard Schoenberger of B&B Hotels. The Umbo Visma guard at the front of the peloton allowed Giulio Ciccone to go solo in the shadow of the Galibier before Louis Meinkies also slipped off the front in the wheel of his Intermarché teammate Georg Zimmermann. Working together, Meinkies and Ciccone made it across to the break with five kilometres to go to the summit of the Galibier. 
Then Perez made his move, pushing away from his breakaway companions in an effort to reach the top first. Meanwhile, a once familiar sight. Chris Froome attacked the peloton, this time in pursuit of the breakaway one and a half minutes ahead. Sure enough, Perez took the full whack of KOM points on the Galibier and started on the long descent. And with Froome still dangling 30 seconds ahead of the peloton, Tom Pidcock saw an opportunity. The Ineos Grenadiers rider struck out of the pack, descending in breathtaking style to catch Froome, and as a pair, they rode on to reach the breakaway. With 75 kilometres to go, the gap to the peloton stretched to as much as 7 minutes and 20 seconds. But as it waned on the Quad Affair, Pidcock took it up at the front, almost instantly shelling Oliveira, Goosens and Schoenberger out the back. Perez lasted not much longer. Behind them, Van Hoydonk led the Jumbo Visma train. He chipped a minute off the deficit in the space of three kilometres. And so to the mythical final climb. Five riders leading the race into the 21 hairpins. Pidcock, Ciccone, Froome, Meinkies and Paulus the latter being the first to succumb. Just over a kilometre later, Pidcock surged away, immediately distancing everyone with only Meinkies and Froome showing any hope of chasing him down. By the time that Van Aert pulled off the front and almost to a standstill on the Alp, the yellow jersey Vingegaard still had three teammates at his disposal. With Primoz Roglic taking the helm, Nairo Quintana and David Gordou, stars of yesterday's stage, were dropped. And as the infernal pace continued, so followed second place Roman Bardet and then Adam Yates. Among the baying crowds up the road, Pidcock's lead continued to extend to 30 seconds over Mankeys and one minute over Froome, with four and a half kilometres still to race. Behind, only Tadej Pogacar, Geraint Thomas and Enric Mas could withstand the onslaught of the yellow jersey and his right-hand man, Sepp Kuss. But ever the showman, Pogacar attacked at Dutch corner of all places, taking only Vingegaard with him. An image already familiar at this tour, the pair rode onwards, with Thomas, winner here in 2018, steadily pacing himself back to them. Mass and Kuss eventually rejoined before it all happened again, with the two-kilometre banner in sight. With all the yo-yoing behind, Pidcock continued to extend his lead all the way to the line. He took the stage win in flamboyant style in his debut Tour de France. Two huge rides from Menkes and Froome saw them complete the stage podium. Pogacar couldn't shake the yellow jersey in his final sprint to the line, but with Bardet losing time, he moves up to second on GC behind Vingegaard. Thomas is now third on GC. The cycling podcast at the 2022 Tour de France, powered by Super Sapien. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insight, and personalized analytics. We are here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, title sponsors of the Cycling Podcast. Now, you'll know by now that they have their own podcast too, the Super Sapiens Podcast, hosted by Zylon Van Eyck and Dr. David Littman. In a recent episode, they spoke to SD Works rider Ashley Moorman-Passio. Here's a clip. 
for as long as I can remember. You know, I'm not really a great morning person. When I when I wake up, you know, I need a bit of time to wake up sort of slowly, 15 or 20 minutes just to myself to have a cup of coffee and then, you know, to be ready <laughs> to face the world. Actually, from the Super Sapiens, I can now kind of understand it because Carl used to think I'm just really being a difficult person you know like come on wake up but yeah. now I actually can show him on Super Sapiens I'm like I, I said to him I swear it's a blood sugar thing you know when I <laughs> when I wake up in the morning I swear it's a blood sugar thing because I feel lightheaded I'm not really ready yet find out more about Super Sapiens system of continuous glucose monitoring which can help tailor your fueling and training for success go to supersapiens.com Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, we're uh, here, yeah, Ian. You actually climb to l'Albuès, but not by the usual route, by the other route, which is called the Saren. But now we are at the finish line, waiting for what is got, seems uh, is going to be a great, great win by Tom Pitcock. I mean, uh, amazing, 22 years old, and he's going to win probably l'Albuès on his first sort of front. Well, I was going to actually save this for when we speak at the at dinner tonight, but I was going to say. If he wins, this will be the third British rider to win in Alp d'Huez. Do you know all... Well, if Pitcock wins, who are the other two? <laughs> so, Garen Thomas... This is Stump the Chump. Yeah, Garen Thomas uh, won in 2018, that's for sure. Uh, Bradley didn't win here. Uh, Chris Froome never won here. Uh, I'm trying to think of another British... I'll give you a hint. We came up called the Saren. So we didn't really win on Alpe d'Huez, but won in Alpe d'Huez. And it was also in the Dauphiné, not in the Tour de France. Uh, uh, can't remember. It was uh, Pete Kenna in 2017, and yeah, Ben yeah. Swift was second. Absolutely. Well, totally slipped my mind, but it's very true, yeah. But, well, yeah. Have you checked that there are no other uh, uh, British wins in uh, any other races? It's going to only be the Dauphiné and all the Tour de France anyway. Yeah, it's true. I, I did not check all of them, but I, I figured those were the two. The two biggest races but yeah I mean we are seeing a, a phenomenal display from from Pitcock and we've also seen a resurgence of Chris Froome as well yeah oh yeah absolutely I mean we I kind of put it we, 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 we've all been really sorry for Chris for a number of months and uh, years like thinking will he ever you know be his former self he's, of, of course he's not back to his Domin you know, his old dominant self, his old flamboyant self, but he, he took his chance. He went into the break, and he, he really held his, you know, his, his, his place in the, in the, and did his job in in, in the break. And he's now going to to finish near the front. And I mean, that, yeah, it's a kind of a resurrection. Resurrection, and I think that whatever we thought of of, of, of Chris Froome at the time, it's 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 great to see. It's great to watch. Well, we're about five k to go, so we should go tune in, and I might walk down the road a little bit and get some. Um, yeah, get a little bit, see if I can get closer to the finish line. Watch out for the gendarmes. Sometimes, you know, they might kick you uh, out of the way. But, uh, yeah, and uh, I'll see you later. Well, you heard Francois and I at the finish line. And um, surprisingly, Francois was not the only person who could not guess the three winners of Team Sky and Ineos who have won atop Alpe d'Huez. Uh, I was able to 
eventually get a hold of, of Rod Allenworth over at the Team Ineos Hotel. And uh, he gave me a few minutes to chat, and surprisingly, he could also not answer the. the th- he knew the t- he knew the two riders who had won a top Alpes, but the I third rider he did not know. I feel much better now, you know, <laughs> not knowing myself. Yeah, you know, we we tend to forget that the Alpes has also been you know climbed uh, in the Dauphiné. So, well, you know, uh, congrats to Peter. You, we, we forgot about you, but yeah, I mean. Uh, L'Albrez on the tour is, in a way, you know, no, no, no disrespect to Peter Cannock, but uh, something else. I mean, what, what Tom Pitcock did today, uh, I mean, we, we expressed our enthusiasm on, on the line, but what, what can I say? Chapeau, you know, 22-year-old, first Tour de France, he wins probably the, one of the two most iconic climbs in the Tour de France with the Ventoux. Uh, I, I, was, I was walking back from the line... Uh, with, our, with, with our colleague Julien Preto from uh, Reuters, and he was saying, "Well, here he is." Uh, I say, "Who was that?" Said, "Well, the next British Tour de France winner." You know, so I, I don't. You know, of course, it's fanciful. You know, one of, of the podcast's favorite uh, adjective, but really impressive performance today. And also at the finish, I mean, this 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 guy is cold blooded. You know, talking to the press like matter of factedly, like. Well, yeah, sure, I won Ladbez, you know, like he was not so, he didn't seem like thrill or a surprise or, you know, like he was, he was, he was just, he was just another step in, in the direction he's, he's fixed to himself. Impressive. Yeah, so let's, let's hear from Rod. And actually, before we do, I do want to mention, I tried to speak to Tom at the top of the Col de Grand on yesterday. And I said, hey, Tom, do you have a moment to speak? And he said, to speak about what? And I presumed he thought I was going to speak to you about the bike race. So anyways, let's hear from, from Rod Ellensworth from Team Ineos. Well, Rod, I had a debate with Francois Tomazo that there have been three British riders who have won up on Alpe d'Huez. Two from the Tour. Can you name the third? You know, you just got me now. I'm trying to think who... Yeah, yeah, who's the third? It was in the Dauphiné, not at the Tour. Ah, was it uh, in the Dauphiné recently? Yeah. Swifty was second. Oh, Pete Kenyo. Yes, you got it. Did he win up here, did he? He did. We came up called the Seren. Yeah, I remember, actually. And him and Swifty were away... But yeah, I didn't remember. <laughs> My it's memory's not so good, mate. Easy one to forget. But I mean, yeah. big stage. I mean, obviously, you know, Tom had, a, had an incredible ride today. Was this was this something planned, or is it just kind of the way the stage developed? Well, you know, I think Tom came into the race like thinking, really, ideally, he was here to help the team and and then look at stage stage wins. So, you know, absolutely planned. And obviously, this morning that was he was the one who was the most likely who could win up here uh, you know Danny's a bit sick Castro's not feeling great um, so you know couldn't really rely on Danny but uh, Tom brilliant I mean fantastic day wasn't it yeah, like really good I mean it's it's huge I mean just for, for the team for himself I mean I think there's a lot of in the, in the press room everyone's asking oh can he be a, a GC rider and you know, I think he's still too young he still has ambitions of mountain bike and cyclocross and maybe some gravel stuff do you think he I mean you've seen enough athletes from you know for someone like G, you've seen him from a young age. Does he have the? I mean, clearly he has the ability, but does he have the desire to be a GC rider? Or is that something maybe down the road? I, th- I think he does. I think he's that's what that's what he's doing here. You know, he's searching and uh, gaining the experience. I think. I think who knows? You know, that's the thing. I mean, I, I always say it when G was, you know, 18, 19, 20, You'd never ever think he could win the tour. You know, not not that you didn't think he couldn't, but it was like you, you know, you just never know, do you? So I think you've got to follow a riders' dreams. I think Tim's uh, sorry, Tom is super super ambitious. 
and who knows what he can do. I mean, I think that just shows his quality today. You, you look at his cadence all the way and everything was, was pretty spot on. He's, his attention to detail is, is exceptional, to be honest. So, yeah, I, th- I think he, who knows, and why not? Well, and another good ride from G as well. He's up to, to third overall. A mm. um, couple, well, not say easy days because there's, there's nothing easy about Mond, but um, just try to stay safe and then try to make something happen in the Pyrenees. Yeah, you know, um, I've been saying for quite a while, you know, I think G's in, in really good shape, uh, mentally really good. And I think, as you know, he's one of the guys who can stay, you know, he's a real stayer, isn't he? You know, and he, and he plays a long game. And I just think he, um, you just don't know what's going to happen at all. And if there's somebody who can do something in the final of this race and just stay at a real even even level the whole way, will be Garain, you know. And he's super motivated. And I think just something like today obviously lifts the team. You know, um, and I think the others will now want to sort of keep pushing. You know. Now, Boz, I know that you obviously rode, um, with, well, not with under Rod Ellingworth uh, for many years. How different is the Ineos Grenadiers plan um, than it was in the days when you were riding there? Yeah, well, I, I did ride under Rod. I mean, you know, he was at Ineos. I think the entire time, or I guess Team Sky, the the entire time that I was there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that you know, as we just heard, you know, he. You know, Pidcock came here with a very kind of unique role in the sense that, you know, Enios has been a team that traditionally comes to the tour with a specific goal with one team leader and kind of everyone is committed to that one goal. And Pidcock has almost kind of had a free role here to, to hunt stages. And, you know, I'm trying to think of, you know, the last time that Enios has won the tour. I mean, Garen Thomas isn't in the position at the moment to, to win, but contend GC but also send someone else up the road for a stage win I mean maybe I'm forgetting something but traditionally it's been you know kind of all for one and, and one for all and, and we're seeing here that you know they kind of are implementing some of these tactics that they've talked about implementing is you know being a little bit more aggressive and actually racing the race uh, uh, Pitcock himself at the, at the end of the, 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 the day did the only thing there, there were two things he said in the press conference that there was uh, interesting in the way they were very genuine like, like you, you 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 could feel the teenage side of him uh it was asked what it felt to be to you know to ride on his own in the lead uh, you know in, in in that sea of people up the mountain and he said this is the most rid- ridiculous thing ever you know <laughs> it was his first reaction and and and, and we can see why you can you could say that because yes that, that there is this amount of of you know yeah, of ridicule. You know, it is ridiculous in a way, but in the same time, he also said it's 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 also the most you know uh, exciting moment of my uh, life so far. So you know, the, the, that's that's Lalbez, a mixture of, of ridiculous and, uh, and and grandiose. You know, grand something absolutely out of the ordinary. And the other thing he said that was interesting, he was impressed by, was to be in a break uh, up front. With Chris Froome, you know, like uh, I, you, you imagine two generations of uh, British riders, uh, Tom Tom Peacock, the, the up and coming star, and 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 Chris Froome, the the, the fading one, and uh, together in that break, uh, it, it obviously he felt you know something, you know, it, it was not emotional, I wouldn't say that, but you know, it, it was like you know he was pinching himself. Yeah, well, I guess I noticed this kind of in the you know the final five k when he was by himself. That you know he is, I mean. Clearly, Pitcock has been in positions before where people have been loudly cheering for him. But to think, you know, for someone like Froome, who's been up Alptuez a number of times and had people, you know, screaming and shouting and, you know, today more so in a positive way than a, you know, maybe a negative way in the past. And how much more maybe energy 
Pidcock got from the fans than maybe someone like Froome who's, would get because he, he's done it before. And for Pidcock, you know, to, to know the legend and the, the myth of Alp Duez and to be off the front, and I'm sure, I'm sure something was going through his mind, uh, you know, what he was doing, you know, because it is such a famous climb. I guess, you know, when I did the tour in 2018, you know, in my mind the night before the race, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to be in the front on Alp Duez. And turns out I was in the back in the Gruppetto. But it is, you know, for whatever reason, such a, a mythical climb and such a famous climb. And, you know, the fact that you have so many fans on the side of the road, you know, definitely probably encouraged someone like Pidcock more than more than what even someone like, you know, Vingagol or, or Pogacar, just because this is his first time at the Tour de France. This is his first time experiencing it. And, and everyone else has experienced it before. The thing, the thing that's missing now, I think, <clears throat> we have Dutch corner. And, I mean, we could see, I mean, Jumbo Visma riding in a sea of Dutch fans. We had the, the Danish corner and Norwegian corner, oddly, are becoming, you know, very important parts of the climb. Where is British corner? It's about time, you know, with two winners. Uh, <laughs> listeners, fans, you know, <laughs> please, you know, the next time we go to Albez, we hope... To, to see a British corner, I, I, there is know. a Welsh. There's a Welsh corner, Francois. The Welsh corner is no. I, I, the Welsh corner exists. It's true. It's it's, yes, it's, it's, it's a, and I believe there's a beef eater bend um, where people dress up in uh, like beef eaters, like the Tower yeah. of London. No, it's it's uh, nice guards. the Welsh corner, but it's it's a little bit too small for for now. And I think that with with Garrett winning it, I know Pitcock. Uh, you know, it, 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 it must really be uh, beefed up, you know, where you were mentioning. Beefed up, very good. Oh. Beefed up. <laughs> <laughs> All about the puns. Actually, I, I did run into Garrett Thomas's wife um, at the finish line. I didn't I didn't record anything. Um, G calls her Sa, but I think her name is Sarah. But I think maybe it's a Welsh thing. Um, and sh- she was actually planning on heading down to, he, she was saying the switchback number 13 was where Garrett Thomas has his, name up on the on the plaque there's a a name of every former winner of Alpe d'Huez on each turn of I guess the 20 21 turns of Alpe d'Huez and she was hoping to get down there on her e-bike with her kid but um she wasn't able to just because the road was closed so she was at the finish line to see G and and their son Max was sprawled out on the pavement um being a kid and playing and enjoying it so it was it was you know unfortunate she couldn't make it down to turn 13 but happy to be able to see G have a good ride as well well, Geraint Thomas was on just typical Geraint Thomas form, wasn't he? I mean, we we kept seeing uh, the attack by Pogacar, Vingegaard following in his wheel and then just a, a steady climb back by uh, Geraint Thomas. But, I mean, what can... Now I'm stepping into the old fanciful territory, but, you know, realistically, where can we see the challenges to the yellow jersey jersey coming from? Yeah, well, I mean, we heard a little bit from Rod that, you know, G is such a steady and consistent rider. And I think we saw that today. You know, he's incredibly experienced as well. So when, you know, attacks are happening, he just, you know, he settles in, he rides his pace. Um, you know, by no means is the is the tour over. And when you look at, when you do look at the GC, there's, what, two and a half minutes to, I guess, Pogachar in, in second place. Um, you know, we have a couple easier days coming up. But, you know, I guess in... In the past, had Pogachar had two and a half minutes, we would have called the race over maybe. You know, the traditional Pogachar would have, you know, ridden away with it. But I still feel that the race is, is very open. And I think we kind of observed that by how the race was, was played out today. Even though I think, you know, apart from the top, is, you remember last year when you had the, the trio, uh, Pogachar, Carapaz, Vingegaard, I mean, you know, in, which, in whichever order you want to put it, greatly... Uh, the, the same trio seems to emerge. Only, you know, Garen Thomas replacing Richard Carpas in the in that Ineos, uh, 
Grenadier. Because because behind that, Bardet is now down to fourth. He's not far away, but he showed uh, uh, his limits maybe a little bit today. Uh, Adam Yates, all these guys, you, you have the impression that, you know, the, the, the gap has been made. You've, you've got three guys, you've got two guys, let's, let's face it. They are really favourites to win the Tour now, obviously. But, you know, it, 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 we can't r rule out, you know, uh, uh, Thomas, because it, it, as you say, is is consistent, is steady. Anything can happen. Crashes, COVID cases. We're not, of course, I'm not wishing for any of this. But you know, g given the way uh, uh, Thomas is, is is pacing himself and is you know just you know uh, just at the right place uh, all the time. Well, you know, a podium place is 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 more than possible, and uh, and even a little bit better. Who knows? This year, the Cycling Podcast laid down a challenge to our partners, MAP, to create three brilliant jersey designs. They are Check, Dot and Fade, and we all know by now which one Francois' favourite is. So let's hear from the designer, Misha Glisevich, telling us about the inspiration for the first design known as Check. The, the Check era, which is kind of, to me, the, the original kind of cycling jersey design, the, the woolen jerseys, seems to have lived on a lot longer than I thought it had in my head, you know, because I was imagining the copy era, you know, 1940s to 60s kind of period as being the woolen knit jersey era. But once I delved into it, it actually turns out that it was um, well into the 70s that were still um, using woolen knit jerseys as the primary jerseys. I think I've taken a fair bit of leadway there with um, the colours because um, they were uh, quite primary during that period. And I've kind of tried to add a bit of a map vibe to them by adding a few contrasting colors. So it, I have taken some design leadway there, but I think primarily during that period, there were very minimal colors, a primary kind of color palette. And as they were knitted, they had to be quite simple. So the check was probably the most um, elaborate design element that they would use, but it was mostly stripes and block colors. I think also the font styles that I've used is kind of reminiscent of those 60s and 70s jerseys that, you know, had, um, uh, I guess, branding of the period wasn't as defined. It was a sausage manufacturer or, you know, a local car dealership that sponsored the teams. Um, so the fonts were a bit wilder and stuff. And they were usually, um, rather than being printed, they were usually um, embroidered on. Take a look at Czech and the other designs and most importantly, vote for your favourite at map.cc. That's M-A-A-P dot C-C. Well, the third day and installment of Breakfast with Boz here on the tour. Today I'm going to call it Breakfast with Boz au pied. I walked from our accommodation here in Briançon over to a little bakery and I picked up something different. They had an almond croissant, but it didn't look fantastic, so I went with a pain au raisin and a quiche champignon that is mushrooms for all of you non-french speakers i'm sure you can all pick up that pain au raisin is a piece of bread with raisin although there is some some custard type filling in there but very delicious cost me four euros 90 so not bad for a for a breakfast picked up a little coffee before that and hopefully it is enough fuel to get me through my plan today which is to see the riders at the start as much as i can and then most likely follow them or duck out early and try to lead the race over the Col de Lauterai and then head over to Alpe d'Huez. I actually don't think I'm going to try to ride Alpe d'Huez itself because I think it's going to be a little bit busy. So I may try to take the hipster's way up Alpe d'Huez, which is the Col de Serene. 
a climb I did in 2016 or 17 in the Dauphiné and my teammate at the time, Pete Kenna, actually won the stage. So it's a familiar climb. It's only 68K, but it's a, it's a big climb. So I'm trying to do some quick mental math and see if I can beat, well, I'll definitely beat the race there because they're going way around the Glibier, Col de Quadrefeuille, and then up Alpe d'Huez. So I should be beating them even if I left after them. But uh, the last thing I want to do being here on the tour working is miss the race because I'm out playing around on my bike. So I'm going to get back to our accommodation for the night, speak with Francois, and come up with a final plan. But I would love to try to get in a longer ride today because it is Bastille Day, so I'm sure there'll be plenty of people out on the road. And as I walk back here in Briançon, there is a lot of cyclists out. It is a national holiday here in France, so hopefully we can get out for a long ride and chat with some people out on the race. Well, I beat the publicity caravan to the top of the Col de Tourmalet and I actually had time to stop and grab a beer. It is 12.01, so figure it's an adequate time to have a beer. And I'll be up here for a while, and uh, this caravan is quite the show. People are trying to grab all sorts of things. A uh, van with a chicken on it just came by throwing out sliced lunch, chicken lunch meat. Um, I wasn't able to get up the Galibier. I could, I guess, walk around the side, but given that I'm in bike shoes and have a bicycle, I think I'm just going to stay here at the, the intersection of the bottom of the Galibier and, I guess, the top of the Col de Tourmalet. I can see up the Galibier, and it's an absolutely stunning sight to see the switchbacks and the caravan slowly zig its way, way up. Um, I, did have a inc I did have a completely closed course coming up the Tourmalet. The road was closed, but I was able to get through all the gendarme with my press pass, which made it easy. Actually, a, a Spanish gentleman sat on my wheel for a while and was very thankful that he was able to, uh, to follow me because he got quite far up the climb and he had anticipations of making it to the top of the lottery. But uh, at one point, he, he got distant, so sorry, buddy. Um, yeah, I, I had to try to make it up here before the, the press caravan. Well, I'm going to sit back and enjoy this beer, soak up the sun, and uh, wait for the riders to come by. Well, here comes the peloton about a minute 50 behind. We have Jumbo leading the way. And it looks like the peloton's all together. No groupetto yet. We have Jumbo on the front. Movistar's up there, as well as Simon Geshka in the polka dot jersey. We've seen quite a few... EF riders near the back and it looks like no Gruppetto has yet formed I see Caleb Ewan pulling up the rear a lot of these uh, sprinters are going to be happy that they've made it to the base of the Glibier still intact and with the breakaway two minutes up the road I suspect that some of these GC riders may actually make it over the top of the Glibier it doesn't look like they're pushing the pace too far or too hard but by the time they get to the Quadrefer I assume that we'll see some action. So I'm going to get on my bike and head over to do the Col de Seren and meet up with Francois at the top at the famous Alpe d'Huez. Well, there you heard the third installment of Breakfast with Boz, and it was more than Breakfast with Boz today. It kind of turned into a, a whole day of eating and drinking. I eventually got to the top of the Col de Lauderay where uh, I beat the race, the, I guess the, the caravan of you know, publicity, so I got to the top, I had a Coke, I had a beer, and I even had an ice cream. And uh, I waited up there, and, it, and you it's very easy on the Tour de France to forget how long you're actually out there. It was two hours up on top of this climb, and I thought, okay, cool, I'll, the race has passed, I'll drop down, and I'll go up the, the Col de Seren. And it got really hot in the valley. And I started climbing up, and the, it looked like the road was closed, or there were signs that the road was closed. And so I stopped in a little town, Francois might know the name of it, Ma... Villard de... 
It's Villard or something. I, yeah, but yeah, yeah, uh, yeah that, that, that's just a nice little village up the, the you know, up the Col de Sarenne. Uh, it doesn't come back to me, but yeah. Yeah, so I, I stopped there and I thought, you know, it's been a long time since breakfast. So I, I stopped and got a pizza and, and another Coke at the, at, I guess, 2K into the climb. And in the anticipation that there's a f chance that I may get up near the top of the climb and the road is going to be closed and I'm not going to be able to make it to Alpe d'Huez. Turns out I was able to get by on my bike, but it, it blew me away at how quiet that road was. You know, we're literally, it's one valley over from, from Alpe d'Huez. And there was no one. There was, you know, maybe I saw two cars, a few people out hiking. And then I dropped into Alpe d'Huez and to this giant circus, you know. And I, you know, there's a moment when I felt a little bit guilty for not actually riding up Alpe d'Huez and seeing the fans. But I actually had a great ride because, I mean, almost the entire day I had no traffic because I got up to Col de Lottere without, because I was ahead of the race, so the road was closed. And then coming off Col de Lottere, once again, the road was closed. And then I hit Col de Seren and, you know, because the road was closed, no one was driving. So I essentially did a 70-kilometer ride with no traffic oh so it was like a, a party atmosphere everyone else it, it obviously not just because of Alpe d'Huez which always attracts a party atmosphere but because it's uh, Bastille Day and of course Francois this is a an in, important day for France but also it always an important day on the Tour de France isn't it, it yeah it is I mean it's, it's it's always special for you know for French riders to to ride on on Bastille Day with French fans been probably more exciting than ever and uh, I mean you know the 14th of July I mean we, we have parties here in in Lalbuez because it's uh, you know uh, it's the race but also probably because you know it's uh, it's Bastille Day um, a, a couple of riders have done well on Bastille Day I mean I remember Richard Viran going in on Bastille Day I remember Tony Galopin wearing the yellow jersey on Bastille Day and today uh, I talked to Florian Seneschal who is the French champion about what it meant to him um, to be riding the uh, the Tour de France on Bastille Day with the you know tricolor uh, flag on on his back and uh, well this is what he had to say. For me, every day is uh, for 14 July because all the French people were so crazy when he say to me in the road with uh, this uh, jersey. So today I think he's more more <laughs> more enthusiastic for the French people. Uh, well, it's nice, but also the parkour, uh, for me, it's not the best parkour today, it's, best, it's not the best stage, it's for climber, yeah. but I, I, I know the next day is the same, uh, I also, I, I think, I hope to Paris, it's also unbelievable yeah. to, to bring this jersey to Champs-Élysées, uh, yes, uh, every day it's a crazy day for me, because I never know uh, this jersey can give uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, to the French people. So every day on the road, I I am a superstar, <laughs> and wow, it's, it's crazy. Uh, I hope I can uh, have this Jose for next year in my yeah. career. Well, on Bastille Day um, in 2018, when I did the tour, it was I think it was a flat day. When we were up north. I think we started like maybe a week later, and surprising or to my surprise i guess it was my first tour and, and only tour and i was surprised that no french riders had gone in the breakaway there was no breakaway for the first 20 or 30k not one attack and i actually dropped back to car number one and i forget who was in maybe it was seb pk behind the race and i asked them and at the time i spoke better french than i do now if if i attacked you know would they give me a french passport because at the time you know every year i was dealing with this difficulty if i had to get my my car séjour and a visa and i thought you know what will they give me an honorary french passport because i know in in the uk you had several athletes and i think lizzie dignan's received a an honorary degree from a university so i thought maybe if i attack on bastille day 
they'll give me an honorary French passport. That didn't work out, and I have since returned to the U.S. Francois, would you give Ian a French passport, do you think? Why not? Why not? I mean, <laughs> Why not? I mean, pers- personally, if I was in charge of pa- you know, French passports, I would I would really give pas- you know French passports to anyone who cares to who wants one. You know, Where, wherever you come from, you know, because I mean, this past day we can get carried away and say you know France is a, is a, is a welcoming country and you know we, we welcome people from all, all all around the world and and so yeah to, to I, I would definitely and, and I mean Ian has lived in France he, he speaks yeah he speaks quite I mean he doesn't speak a lot of French with me but he speaks very <laughs> he speaks pretty good French uh, he, he know he knows the French culture and everything and and if he, uh, if I were you know, the minister of in, in, uh, interior for sure I'd give him a French passport Definitely. And talking of French culture, I should ask you, you know, what you are drinking there to celebrate Bastille Day. I hope it's a French beer. Uh, so, uh, well, I'll tell you what it is. Uh, it is Brasserie du Mont Blanc. So I, I mentioned uh, two beers uh, yesterday, uh, one called Brasserie du Mont Blanc. We're having it now and it's quite good, actually. You know, uh, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lager with a little bit of uh, body, you know, and uh, and really... Very tasty, yes. <laughs> you know, someone would have said. Uh, so it's it's fun. And 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 the other one I saw, I saw yesterday in that shop was the famous uh, uh, La Bière du Crétin des Crétins des Alpes. And so so it's a funny thing because we we I, I, I told a little bit yesterday about Alpine Cretinism, and uh, you know I thought that probably a, a lot of listeners would would feel would feel mm, what has got what what is what what has it got to do with cycling i mean i'm not saying there are not cretins in cycling but never mind <laughs> so the the, um, the the but the, the the funniest thing is today we received an email from an endocrinologist uh, uh, so very serious uh, man you know uh, knows his uh, his trade uh, called simon saunders uh, explaining what cretinism is and and apparently it's due to la- l- lack of iodine you know so if you don't have enough iodine you 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 you, you develop that kind of uh, you know so symptoms uh, uh, d- defined by scientists as uh, uh, cretinism so it's, so you you only the only thing you need to do is, you know, uh, give iodine to to the, those people, and, and the problem uh, doesn't doesn't exist. So I suppose that if you live by the sea, where there's a lot of iodine, then probably you're, you're less affected by cretinism than when when you live far from the sea. But I mean, a, a number of, of of places were mentioned by uh, by the, by Simon Saunders, or obviously a, a listener, like Cleveland, Cleveland, Ohio, and even even places in Derbyshire. So. Uh, guys, uh, you know uh, more about alpine cretinism than, than I ever did. <laughs> it's amazing what a question about beer can take you, isn't it? <laughs> Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2022 Tour de France. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to sponsors of the cycling podcast, Science in Sport. Now, they have been powering us in more ways than one this week. Our producers, Hugh and Adam, both put in a mammoth effort to complete the Etape up Alp d'Huez at the weekend. And you can hear more about that in our Kilometre Zero episode, Tale of the Etape, out this morning. But both of them were fully fueled by Science in Sport products during their training, during the ride itself and for the recovery afterwards, of course. To find out more about science in sport and get yourself 25% off all of their products, head to scienceinsport.com and use the code SISCP25. Now, we just had this uh, amazing stage and it feels like we haven't given enough 
airtime to talking about Jumbo Visma and the, the job they did in, in defending the yellow jersey. It was a very different team setup that we saw today than we saw yesterday, wasn't it, Francois? Yeah, well, yesterday I, I thought about it this morning. You know, sometimes when we wake up in the morning, so oh, this is what I should have said in the podcast. You know, in the in the last episode, and 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 you know, some 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 people uh, said, you know, that that in the days of uh, Team Sky's dominance, uh, you know, other teams should have you know attacked uh, uh, Team Sky or Ineos the way. Pogacar was attacked yesterday, but there's a huge difference, you know. You you had to attack six or seven guys at the time, and 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 the, the situation yesterday was entirely different. It was seven, it was six or seven guys attacking one guy, you know. And 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 so so, in a way, we're back to normal now. The the the, the stronger team has got the stronger guy in the yellow jersey, and in in a way, uh, Jumbo Visma played you know the guerrilla uh, uh, yesterday and now that they are in power they, they're riding a little bit more conservatively and, and, and in a more traditional fashion I guess yeah I mean I we heard from several of the the riders and staff yesterday at the top of the Grand on and and I think the the confidence with their team at the moment is is super high and you know as Francois said it, it is a very un- unique well it was really rare that what we saw a couple of days ago with Pogachar being you know so strong but his team really not being there and I, and I think we when we look at Yumbo they really do have an incredibly strong and deep team and one thing that has been mentioned before is them kind of cycling riders and this is something that people mentioned that happened at Team Sky and Ineos I n- was never a part of being cycled through or having easy days I just had days when I was good and days when I was bad but I did notice that you know up until today we hadn't really seen a lot from Sepp Kuss. I mean he'd, he'd been there late into the race but he we didn't see Sepp like we saw him today where he was actually you know up there and he and he kept coming back and you know he was really a, a key you know really the key mountain mountain domestique in in today's stage and I guess it makes me realize that this is probably part of the plan this wasn't just you know Sepp just didn't happen to be on a good day he had probably been kind of reserved for a stage like today. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I mean, he, he was impressive, absolutely, and we know that it was uh, actually, you know, Team Sky, Team Ineos tactics to 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 to, to keep guys in reserve. I, I, I think I said yesterday that Sepkus was probably the the Pyrenees man, you know, while he was used a little bit earlier, and and he was used today. I mean, to add, you know, to his limits actually, uh, and that's that's what he said when I actually had the chance to grab a few words from him. Um, you know, not at the finish line, but I, I, as he was riding back to his uh, hotel. It was a tricky start, uh, but we, we were in control the whole day. And um, yeah, the, the last climb just uh, wanted to keep a good pace. And uh, we knew Pogacar would, would try and attack, but uh, yeah, Jonas was uh, responding right away and he looked super good. There's a bunch of hard stages to come and, and we can't. Um, you know, take it easy yet, but uh, we, yeah, we have a really strong team, and, and most importantly, Jonas is is uh, one of the strongest guy in the race right now. So that gives us all the confidence we need. Yeah, it was crazy. Uh, all the people at first, it's a bit uh, too much noise, but then then you get used to it, and it uh, yeah, just gives you more uh, more power to keep going. Uh, Did you see some interaction between you and a fan? Uh, Were you shouting at someone? No, no, I, I was too uh, out of breath to shout at anybody, but I, I was just looking, making sure the guy didn't uh, uh, trip and fall. <laughs> now, we heard there uh, Sepp Kuss, who was kind of given the responsibility over the last uh, 5K, but it it came to be that Pogacar didn't want to wait that long for Sepp Kuss to roll off and then just to attack Vingegaard. He kind of attacked 
Kuss and Vingegaard, uh, didn't he, Boz? Yeah, he did. And, and, you know, one of my observations today, was, and I guess we heard in the media kind of over overnight that Pogacar had said that he will attack on Alpe d'Huez. And he did make an attack near the top, but it wasn't a typical Pogacar attack. And I, and I wonder if his attack was more of a... I'm going to fulfill the word that I said that I'm going to attack because it, he didn't really drop anyone. Everyone came back, you know, even Sepp Kuss came back. Um, and I think even Enrique Moss returned to the, and they almost slowed down more after his attack. And, and it wasn't, you know, where he attacked wasn't the smartest, but he attacked right before a switchback and he had to stop pedaling. And, you know, it was, it was exciting for a second, but you very quickly realize that if, if Pugacher had been on a good day, he probably would have attacked earlier on on the climb when it was steeper. You know, very seldom have we seen anyone go away that late on, on a climb because it, it, it you know as you kind of come into the village it does tend to flatten out and there are so many switchbacks that you can't really carry that much speed yeah it was kind of a surge of pride from uh, from uh, Pogacar there like a, a sound warning like look you know it's not finished uh, I, you know I, I attack meaning I feel much better than I did yesterday and wait you, you haven't seen uh, anything yet and, you know it was kind of and it was funny because uh, we had the impression that when you attacked uh, at one stage, we saw Pogacar and 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 Vingegaard almost side by side, like they were chatting, and like you had the impression that Jonas was st- was 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 telling Tade, oh, well, well tried, mate," or you know they were, and and uh, it gives the impression, and that, and that's 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 really cool for the race that they're they're enjoying themselves, uh, that they're they're going to attack, strike, defend, you know, and they're, and it's a, it's a game that they play like kids and, you know, much to the pleasure of, I mean, the fans and us, you know, and uh, it was, it was, yeah, it was refreshing to see, like, you know, well tried. Uh, in the past, it was Pogacar trying this, this, this kind of lame attempts to, to, to you know, topple Pogacar. Now the, the, the roles have been reversed a little bit and it makes it even more exciting. Yeah, I mean, and I think that, you know, I guess my thought is, you know, a former cyclist that what, Pogacar's best way to try and still win this tour was today to try to limit his losses, and he and he kind of did that. And that's why I think his, as Francois said, his his attack was his attack was almost ceremonial. You know, he he wanted to put on a show and he wanted to show that he's still there, but being so close to the finish and kind of as the the climb flattens out, it wasn't really something that was going to distance anyone. And you know, some people got dropped temporarily, but I think it was more of a sign of okay, I know I he knew he knew he felt well enough that he was going to make it to the finish line with Vingegaard. He was going to make it, you know, and not lose time today. So he really kind of saved himself to a degree, made you know made an effort, showed that he's still in the race, and you know then now we have a couple of days of of him you know hopefully being able to recover before we hit the the Pyrenees. Yeah, I mean Pogacar is a rider who I mean even when he was in the yellow jersey, he's very much attack is the best uh, form of defence, isn't he? But I believe uh, Ian, you caught up with his fiance Orshka Zigart, who's who is herself uh, a fantastic rider for Team Bike Exchange. Uh, so let's hear what she had to say to you then. Well, I'm here with Urska. Did I say that correct? It's Urska, but really close. And you are the fiancé of Pogachar, And you've been here since La Plange de Belfi. We're now up at, at Alpe d'Huez. I mean, you said you're, you're nervous. Why are you nervous? Yeah, well, I'm just nervous because I want him to do his best now. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's just so many people, so many expectations. Everybody wants a big show, but I just want him to come through safe. And, uh, yeah, you never know what happens, so... And did you have a chance to speak to Tade yesterday after the stage? Yeah, I spoke to him uh, in the in the hotel after. Um, yeah, nothing special, just, uh, I would say, uh, first uh, real bad day for him in the past two years. So, 
Um, yeah, I think he just ran out of energy. It wasn't like he was lacking a little bit of watts. It was just, you could see that he just hit a wall. So, yeah, yeah nothing he can do about it now. Well, and that's what I noticed. It's really like the first time we've seen him not dominate. And it was, I mean, of course it's, you know, he's still so young. He, and even I saw him, I was up at the finish line, and he still was, you know, congratulating Vingegaard. And he still, I mean, he still has this personality of being, he really just loves racing his bike. Is that, I mean, you know him better than anyone else. Is that the sense that he, but obviously once the expectations are put on him by team, by fans, by, you know, the amount of Slovenians at this tour, it's insane. Do you feel like that pressure is starting to become overbearing that it could take some of the fun out of it? Uh, I think he's just really good with uh, focusing on himself. And the the thing you said, like, he just loves to ride his bike, race his bike, and he just always wants to do his best. And if somebody's better than him on the day, like, he accepts this because there's nothing he can do about it after so yeah that's yeah like you said he just loves racing his bike and every day is a new opportunity he's achieved so much already that i think he's not really worried about one day two days or whatever happens and yeah he'll just try and do it tomorrow i don't know well guys i mean we've we've got nine more stages so uh we've got the autocam next week so the gc is definitely not wrapped up but um, the King of the Mountains is also a competition that is showing a, a, a bit of interest, isn't it, Ian? It is, yeah. I mean, we've, you know, Simon Geska has been in the jersey for a couple of days now, but, you know, obviously as we, we hit the high Alps, points become greater over, over the big climbs. And, and Louis Mankies, who, you know, has really made a strong return in this race, has kind of come back into into contention. You know, I think he's several points behind, but, you know, there's still a lot of a lot of points to be gained and, you know, both riders are exceptional climbers. You know, I guess if you put it on on paper, you know, Louis is probably a slightly better, kind of more pure climber than than Simon. But equally, the KOM competition is not always. I don't say it's not the best climber because it, it it typically is not the best climber. It's kind of the most creative rider who can also climb well. It's about getting in breakaways. It's about taking points when maybe they're not the biggest climbs, but you can actually acquire points. And the guy, the guy who's going to do it, if if uh, you know, if it's not Tadej Pogacar, will read Tadej Pogacar of of a jersey, he, he, you know, he, he won for the, the the last two editions as well. So this, this can also, you know, it's kind of a of a new thing in a way. Uh, when when obviously the green jersey is is is, is all set, unless you know something bad happens to Wood Van Aert, which we don't. Uh, that, well, which obviously we don't hope to uh, to happen, but but I mean, let, let's think about today. He could he could lose his yellow jersey. He could is he, is in the position to lose the his polka dot jersey. And how about the white jersey? I mean, Tom Pitcock sh- showed today that he was a, a serious contender for, for 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 the jersey as well. So actually. If, if you look at the, the different, you know, prizes, uh, Tadej Pogacar is, is a tax on all fronts, in a way. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but I mean, we all we can all see that he's he is riding just for that yellow jersey, isn't he? I mean, he he's not going to settle for no, having the white jersey. He will risk everything for the yellow jersey, of course. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think he's a rider that. You know, and when you look back at his career, he's thrived. So he's been so successful, really, from the beginning of his career. I think you know one of the first times I heard his name was at Tour of California when he won. And you know, really since then, he's continued to win. And and you know, we heard from his fiance that, you know, yesterday was the first bad day that he had really had in the last two years. And so I wonder, you know, and I think I said this last night, how much that'll affect his his psyche. And you know, and once again today, you know, 
maybe a, a show, showsman attack, but he, he tried to attack, but he didn't get away. And so, I mean, are these things going to start to play on his psyche going forward that he, he no longer has a, an iron fist on not just the yellow jersey, but, you know, two other jerseys as well? Well, we know, we know as well that the Alps and Pyrenees are different, you know, uh, sides of the same planet. And, uh, you know, one is the, f for many riders, one is the dark side, the other one is the, the bright side. So, you know, once again, everything can, can, can change. Uh, another rider who, uh, who won in La Dres or in, in the past and won a Grand Tour at very young age was Fausto Coppi. I, I mentioned in Fausto Coppi uh, because, because, because the Italians lo won lots of... Uh, uh, stages of the Tour de France in Alpes, and it's uh, it's pretty strange that there is no Italian corner, you know, with pizza, pasta, and uh, Chianti. It would be it would be a little <laughs> bit different, to be honest. And may maybe you you know uh, an, an Italian you know singer you know singing different stuff than the the kind of uh, techno stuff we we have on the, on the other corners. So, Italian our Italian friends, what what are you doing? And no, I'm mentioning that because it, it was the 70th anniversary of the first climb up. Uh, L'Albuez today, and it was 1952. And Fausto Coppi that day was so good and 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 you know so dominant that the organizers said, well, actually this 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 slope is not so interesting. You know, they they thought it would make the, a difference like the Granon did yesterday, and it didn't. So they actually dropped it for 24 years. And and the the, the second time uh, they went back there was in in 1976. So it it took them a long time to uh, you know for the tour organizers to realize that L'Albuez could could be a, could be a class I do have to say, I've spent three days now with Francois, and I am just amazed that he can pull this stuff out of his head, that he can pull out just dates and, and facts. And, and, you know, I guess podcast listeners will know that, you know, you know a lot about cycling, but, you know, we were at dinner last night, and it's not just about cycling. It's about politics. It's about geography. It's about, you know, not even just, you know, within France, but, but globally. And I have been blown away by your wealth of knowledge. I'm just old, you know. That's, <laughs> uh, that's the thing. It's called old age. <laughs> <laughs> now we're revealing that Francois isn't just sitting behind a, a massive laptop looking uh, everything up as he goes. It, it is actually all genuinely comes just straight off the top of the head, doesn't it, Francois? It helps when it helps with a little wine. I imagine helps the thoughts. The, the, the thing is, when we're, with all the age, you you know lots of things, but you'd better you, you 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 have to check from time to time that your memory serves you well. And 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 it's always good that that, that you know I I, I I have a date wrong or something because because then you can be sure that one of our listeners would point it out somewhere in the social networks. No, Francois, it was not late 1952. It was it was in the, in this case, I'm sure. You know, but from time to time, you at the top of your head, you you, you know something happens. So you, you you go for it and you say okay the, the, my brain says it must be right but and if it's not you know I know uh, correction corner will be another one you know we, we should have correction corner on l'albuez you know? <laughs> we actually we, we should because I actually am going to put this to the listeners to actually let me know if there have only been three British winners at the top of Alpe d'Huez in I guess we could say men's professional cycling and I guess you know maybe there's another small race or a junior race that has come up here but you know, I'm thinking of a world tour race that has finished atop Alpe d'Huez. And, and, you know, my recollection is, is the three British riders who have, who have won up here. There may be more, but I am not aware of it. Francois didn't know, and even Rod didn't know. So I, I believe I'm correct, but any listeners out there who are uh, history buffs of cycling, please let us know if I'm incorrect in that fact. I think now that we're kind of doing preemptive corrections corners, <laughs> I think it's probably time that we wrap up this podcast. So thank you both for your uh, company. Thank you, Francois. Thank you, Rose. And thank you, Ian. Thank you, Rose. 
and uh, we'll be uh, playing you out uh, tonight with a moment uh, from another Bastille Day um, and uh, an image that will live long in the memory of every cycling fan, that's for sure. Uh, for our Tour de Buffalo tonight, we take you back to Chris Froome making a run for it on Mont Ventoux. The Tour du Buffalo, remembering Richard Moore. Richie, what happened? What happened there? The motorbike just stuck right in front of us. Was that a fan as well? I don't know. What the hell happens now? Cuts off. The motorbike crashed us. Ah oh, shit! No, we didn't know that. It can't. This can't be right, huh? No. Well, that was Richie Port just after he crossed the finish line at Mont Ventoux today, meeting his press officer, who didn't know what had happened in the closing stages of today's stage in the Tour de France. Lionel, where are we? Well, we're now in a square in Orange, uh, about an hour's drive down the mountain. Earlier on, though, we were at Chalet Reynard, six kilometres from the top of Mont Ventoux, where stage 12 of the Tour de France finished from Montpellier to Mont Ventoux. And, of course, if anyone doesn't know, the stage was shortened by six kilometres because the wind was blowing very strongly up there, wasn't it? And It, it really was. And that had all sorts of knock-on effects for the race today, didn't it? Today, it was the final kilometre... Chris Froome, Richie Port and Balcomolema had broken clear from most of the other favourites who were 23 seconds behind going to the final kilometre. To explain some of the challenges today, which were numerous, we were at the top of, of the mountain. We were watching the stage at the side of the Lotto Sudal team bus. They had a screen embedded in their, in their bus and we were watching it there. We didn't see the actual incident where a motorbike stopped in front of that group of three and Richie Port slammed into it. Chris Froome hit Richie Port and then was hit himself by a motorbike and his bike was bike was broken. So we were watching it and it was all we saw that a, a BMC rider had a problem. I was standing beside Daniel Freib who said, "Well, that's that's TJ Van Garderen, obviously it's TJ TJ." And the camera went back to the chase. Then the camera went to Chris Froome running up the mountain and I don't think I'll ever forget that surreal sight. It was it was completely and this is, there's been a lot of bizarre things happened at the tour over the years. This was the most bizarre thing I have ever seen. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed and Lionel Burney.